This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. Welcome to the Counter Narrative Podcast, a show designed to change the way we talk and think about education. By sharing stories of successes and triumphs, we aim to challenge the dominant narrative that often negatively portrays our disenfranchised populations. I'm your host, Charles Williams, an urban educator for more than 15 years, a current school principal in Chicago, an educational consultant, an equity advocate, and the co-host of Inside the Principal's Office. Let's get started. In this episode, I chat with Lisette Jacobson and Maurice McDavid, the co-hosts of the Black, Brown, and Bilingue podcast, a show designed to unite the Black and Brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. Both Lisette and Maurice have over a decade of experience serving in education, and both are currently principals in the suburbs of Chicago. During our conversation, we focus on the intersectionality of language and identity. When was the last time you considered the relationship between the two? And what did your assumptions or reactions say about your perceptions? For example, Lisette and Maurice talk about the, quote, improper language that is used in academia and yet is commonplace with those who use the same language to convey love, affection, and support within their homes. They point out that language, which is acceptable in our educational system, is often elitist and serves to create barriers among many of our marginalized populations, despite their great skill sets. Are you ready to hear more from this dynamic duo? Well then let's go. Or should I say, vamos. Hello and welcome back to the show or welcome to the show if this is your first time tuning in and so happy that you are here with me because I have two amazing guests, two podcasters. So they they know the deal. They know how to move through this. And so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, it is the hosts of Black, Brown, and Bilingual. I had Lisette on before. So if you go back and find uh, her episode, I'll drop that in the show notes. But her co-host, Maurice, is also joining us this morning. Uh, how are both of you? Doing very well. Doing very well, uh, thoroughly enjoying just an opportunity to, uh, to sit down and relax here uh, during break. And um, man, yeah, everything is good. Lisa. And I'm so happy to be back on um, with you, Charles. It's been a minute, but has, I feel like every time we get some good laughs in, but also bring, you know, hopefully some um, thought provoking content. 
I was going to say, we, we've already started with the banter and the laughter, so I cannot <laughs> wait uh, to jump into this episode. Uh, so, But before we do, if you wouldn't mind just telling our listeners a little bit about who you are. I, I know, you know you're both administrators. Uh, you know, we're, we're all, you know, here in, in Illinois. And a little bit about your show, kind of the purpose, the premise around it, and then we'll jump into this episode. Yeah, so um, I actually would really like to highlight um, the podcast, Black, Brown, and Bilingua, just because I think that really has been the impetus of some of the other things that Maurice and I are working on. Um, and this started, I want to say, 2020. Um post George Floyd and the pandemic. And Maurice and I actually went to grad school together. And I think that's where our friendship really grew and our and our families got to know one another. And we would leave class. This was like 2016, was it Maurice? You might have to yes. it. Yep. I don't remember. Um, and we would be in the parking lot and we'd be talking about social justice, equity, um, racism, education, you name it, you know, we talked about it. And we would be like, man, we should really be recording this because though we are both, you know, identify as people of color, our experiences um, obviously were very different. And so it was very like, it was a moment where we're like, you know what, there aren't a lot of like black and brown people, male, female, talking about these things. And so we always joke, like, we need to record a podcast. And so then when life kind of slowed down, we were like, let's just do it. We wanted to talk about it. And we've been there since. And then eventually it evolved into SEMA, which is our consulting. I know that's become a kind of a contentious thing on Twitter, <laughs> but um, we've gotten some really good opportunities there. And then we're also doing some writing. So it has been a wonderful journey. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will just um, add in there too, you know, during that time when we were in grad school, you know, Lisette introduced me to the idea of this black brown divide. So pretty much any time, Charles, I would fry her, you know, she would be like, oh, that's the black brown divide right there. See, and, and um, but it wasn't when she was frying me, you know, oh, so anyways, yeah. <laughs> no, but, um, but that certainly has been a part of uh, part of our conversation, um, you know, we have oftentimes um, been the only people in, in in a lot of spaces that we have worked in. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, you know, in previous districts that we've worked together, she's been the only uh, Latina or one of a few. And, and um, you know, in my current role, I'm the only uh, uh, Black male building administrator. And, um, and so thinking about um, how some of those things show up, I think has drastically impacted uh, the work that we do um, mm -hmm. and uh, and want to continue to do, I think, moving forward. Well, I, I cannot say thank you enough for launching the show. You're right. Like, you know, I think the pandemic, right? We, we can sit around and talk about all the horrible things that happened. And don't get me wrong, a lot of negativity did come out of the pandemic, obviously. But mm -hmm. I think it also sparked opportunities that were not there before, or or maybe were there, just we just didn't know how to move forward with them. Uh, you know, this show, same thing, was launched during that time frame because, as you mentioned, things slowed down. I was able to actually take these ideas and thoughts and put them into action. And so, you know, it, it is one of those things. Like it's like this had to be done, and so there's a there's a silver lining there. And so glad that you guys are. 
you know, in this space with me today, but glad that you're doing this work. I love the fact that you're talking <laughs> like that, that black brown divide. We're not going to have this conversation here, but now I, I'm just curious. Have you guys seen the new Wakanda movie? Yes. I listened to your episode and I was like, man, hey, I got to talk to this brother because I, ah, yeah, like you said, not today, not today, but yeah. I definitely, man. We got to schedule that though, Charles. There, there we go. I mean, I'm it. telling you, my like my wife and I were sitting in the car afterwards driving to dinner and it was just, it was awkward. I mean, in the movie, it was awkward. We're like looking at each other like, are, 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 we, are we supposed to be sitting next to each other? Because, you know, she's from Guadalajara. And I was like, I, I don't know what to do, you know, like, <laughs> it's like, we're going to walk out of the theater, start whistling, snapping our fingers. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but <laughs> so, it's all good. No, no, yeah, it's me, all good. had a pretty heated debate about it. You know, I'm going to say this one thing and then I'm going to drop it. I feel like they could have done like more with, Sinamor. Like, I feel like the world that he was living in could have been much, like, more vibrant and cooler, but it was kind of murky. And I was like, they couldn't even let the brown man shine? No, he, so. you know, he had to be a villain somehow. And, like, I don't... Yeah, but his world could have been a little cooler. Like, it no, I agree. Been... I agree. There, there was a, there's a lot of different ways. And for those of you listening, to the, just jump into the other episode or join us when we do this episode, because it feels like it's going to happen. Because there's a lot it's to unpack happen. with this show. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's jump in like and i'm curious what it is that we want to talk about because you know obviously we there's no pre-planning for the show maurice and i were talking about before you know at least like your show my show this isn't designed to be you know stuffy academics it's literally just educators sitting down and having a conversation so you know there, there's not a lot of like pre-planning and scripting and like what are you going to say and what am i going to say we just launch in and so i'm curious you know, as we're thinking about the world in which we operate, right? Three minority administrators, as you pointed out, oftentimes sitting in spaces where we are the only person, right? Um, I just left a board meeting uh, for a uh, for a university on which I sit on one of their boards, and I am the only, like Maurice, you said, the only black male in that space, right? And so you kind of look around and you're like, well, when we're talking about the issues within the institution. This is one of those reasons, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it all starts at a source. So I'm curious what it is that you all want to talk about when we're thinking about the spaces that we occupy, where is some place that we can stand up and push back against that narrative and say, you know what, here's a different perspective or here's a reality that often isn't shown through. Uh Charles, one of the things that has, I think, developed out of this, out of our podcast, and then from there, kind of some of the ongoing conversations, um, you know, I think um, our, first off, our podcast is called Black, Brown, and Bilingue, right? And so this idea, this third portion, this identity that Lisette and I both share is that we are bilingual, right? Um, And so we both speaks English and Spanish, but I would argue that Lisette and I also speak uh, a variety of dialect. And so this has been one of the spaces we have really been pushing back. So I'll kind of introduce it with just sharing a quick story from a Christmas dinner at my father's house. Uh, My auntie is sitting at the table 
and she starts talking about how some of the people in my generation, they just speak so improper. Mm-hmm. And um, and I had to take a moment, uh, and, and Lissette famously um, has kind of coined this phrase, and now we both use it with regularity, but I want to give her credit for, for kind of this idea that when we talk about language as improper, right, we work in schools. And if you tell a student that the language that they're speaking is improper, what we don't realize is that that student receives love in that language, receives encouragement in that language because their mom, their auntie, their grandma all speaks that that dialect of English such that when you call that improper, you're actually speaking more about their home, their culture, their family than just about that language. And so we've kind of looked at ways in which we can talk about um, what what I, I've noted now is being called general American English versus perhaps African-American uh, vernacular English or African-American English or, or Chicano English. Um, and so that's kind of been an area for us where we have been very intentional about bringing our full selves into um, conversations, into meetings, that you're not going to hear me talk just one way. Um, I'm not going to change, you know, and code switch completely to try to fit in to to different spaces. But I want to be able to bring that linguistic self. So I think that's that's definitely an area for us that we have been really trying to push back. Yeah, and just to to add on to that a little bit. Um, it goes beyond even just our students, right? We know that uh, students tend to do better when they have teachers who look like them. And I really think that we're at a critical point where, you know, we have a teacher shortage, but we have known for a while that we need to bring in um, teachers of color, particularly black male educators. And one of the things that Maurice and I are intentional about is Again, bringing our entire linguistic identity to the workplace because we feel that that does a lot for not only recruiting, but retaining, right? Because think of think of language and what it can do for you and um, the comfort, the bonds, the connections. You know, that's what we want. People want to feel connected to their workplace. Um, and we feel like that is a huge endeavor that needs to be taken. Like we have to look at some of the things below the cultural um, iceberg that are rarely talked about if we're going to get serious about retaining teachers of color. You know, I, I think it's fascinating as we start talking about this idea of improper language. Uh, you know, I often talk in, in my sessions and my workshops about how I was raised by my grandparents uh, who were both, uh, you know, descendants of European immigrants, my, fa- my grandfather, uh, first generation Irish immigrant here. And so I think this idea of proper English was something that was p- like just part of my foundation as I was growing up, right? I, I didn't really know anything else. Uh, you know, my my father's side, my father uh, was black, his family, I did not know them. Um, and so I often was accused, right, as I entered into different spaces of, Maurice, as you mentioned, of code switching. Oh, you're, you're, you're switching up. You're, you're trying to sound, quote, white. And I was like, what are you talking about, right? This, this is just the <laughs> manner in which I speak. And as I got older, as I started sharing more and more spaces, what I recognized was that 
I could have the same foundational understanding. I could have the same message, the same delivery as a peer next to me. But because my voice was different, because my vernacular was different, it granted me space and access that he or she may not have, right? And it, it becomes a very challenging thing. And I'm curious in your, you know, as, as administrators, right, we are, our job is how do we raise students so that way they can go and be successful in the world? And I don't know about you, but I often find myself conflicted in this area to say, I want you to be authentically you, right? Mm-hmm. I, I want to promote equitable outcomes. I want to push back on these systems that are, are just absolutely unjust. But at the same time, I recognize the world in which we operate. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I oftentimes find myself at a crossroads with my students to say, listen, if you, if you speak this way, right, out in corporate America or wherever it may be, more often than not, this is going to be the outcome, right? You're, you may not land that job that you want. And it's not because of your skills, your intelligence, your abilities, any of those things, simply because of the way that you're speaking, right, mm-hmm. will we'll interfere with that. And then on the other side of that, I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, how do we change the systems and structures so that way, right, these different dialects and vernaculars are just accepted, right, and in commonplace across the spaces in which we work. And so I'm, I'm curious for the two of you, right, what has been your own experience and kind of navigating that yourselves, but with your students that we are charged with saying, hey, let me get them ready for this bigger world outside of our school. Um, so I often give the example of my own kind of moment where I became aware of my linguistic identity. And that was in second grade, where um, I was the typical little Mexican girl translating for her parents at parent-teacher conferences. And um, I walk in with my dad, and I remember just realizing, like, oh, no, they can't communicate with each other. Um, And my teacher was extremely sweet, super kind. She made no, like, disparaging remarks. But she didn't explicitly even acknowledge the fact that I was a child being able to translate for the two of them so that we could have this parent-teacher conference. And looking back, that really led to me wanting to separate my two identities, right? Like I was homeless at, and then I was schoolless at. And those worlds very rarely came together. And I didn't really stop to think about it until I was a mother, So years and years where my parents were um, kind of pushed away because of me and this this linguistic um, barrier that I perceived at the time. But I stop and think of how different that outcome would have been just acknowledging, right? Had my teacher acknowledged what I was doing and saying maybe like, wow, that's incredible or anything. Um, But because she didn't say anything, I internalized it and it had a huge impact on my identity. And so... Now, as educators, um, we're very intentional about, you know, just calling attention to it, that there's there could be things that you say at home, and this is how maybe you can um, address it or say it in school or in a formal setting. I think we do have to be very explicit about it, Charles, because we do want our students to ultimately be successful, and we can't wait for the rest of the world to catch up to that. So we do have to provide them the tools to navigate. But also, 
Sorry, were you going to say something? <laughs> Uh, yeah, Lissette, I was just going to call that out. I was just going to call out that, you know, uh, Lissette's background is in is in bilingual education. Um, and I'm kind of getting that uh, through some of the work that I've done as an administrator. Um, but what I'll say is one of the things she's talking about right now is what we call in, in bilingual education, bridging, right? So it is the idea of like taking your language that perhaps you're stronger in and using that as a way to build a bridge over to this language that you're learning. And so that, I think that same thing can happen, right? I'm I, I'm not in opposition to teaching general American English, right? That's what the standards are. That's what the ACT is written in, the SAT. So, But I think that we have to acknowledge that the language that many of our students are coming in with, their spoken language, differs from the language that is being taught inside mm-hmm. of our schools. In fact, there's a really good article called Teaching Reading to African-American Children. It's by Julie A. Washington and um, Mark S. Uh, Seidenberg. Um, but um, that kind of talks about this idea. Um, so, Lissette, I wanted to just jump in and yeah, kind of no, call that Yeah, no, totally. Out. And, and that was going to be my next point of um, we really need to, at least Maurice and I, we're very intentional about viewing language through a linguistic perspective. And language is dynamic. It's forever changing. It is evolving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, years and years ago, the word piano or zoo or bus were considered slang and you would have been deemed uneducated if you use that word, right? Because it's really pianoforte or omnibus or zoological garden. Um, and so we've evolved though, and, and language is super dynamic. And there are those who view that as like, mind rot and oh this language is just going down the drain and there are others that view it which maurice and i do as like this is just how language is it evolves it is dynamic and now with social media i mean we see this changing so quickly and so when you take that linguistic perspective you just realize that this is just us developing ways to communicate i love that and lisa you know just so you know now that you mentioned that the next time uh, you know, maybe before all the holidays are over, I'm going to suggest to my wife that we take our grandson down to see the lights at the Lincoln Park Zoological Garden. No, I'm joking. Because <laughs> <laughs> who has time to say all that? Let's exactly, go to the exactly. <laughs> you know, it, I, I think it's just, it's fascinating. And Maurice, I'm glad you mentioned that article. I, I literally I have it pulled up. I clicked on it this morning. I was like, I'm going to definitely read that later on today. Uh, so it is in my queue of things to do today. Um, but we, we, we do, we allow this kind of subjective perspective to get into the way of things, right? We, we say, well, if you're not doing it this way, then that means that you're less than, but who's to say, right, where this starts or when it's acceptable? Because as you mentioned, right, at some point, right, like we, our language shifts and we as a society collectively agree that, hey, it's okay to use, right? zoo instead of zoological or cell instead of cellular, right? Like it's okay for us to kind of shorten these things as we're moving through. But oftentimes, unfortunately, as we know, society is also the reflective of those ideologies, right? And so the things that are accepted in some spaces aren't always accepted. I remember being in school and being told like, ain't ain't a word, right? Like yes, it, it isn't in the dictionary, therefore it doesn't exist. And then it's fascinating you know, as we see the dictionary shift every year, right? I always like to look yes. up like what words have been added, right? mm-hmm. but just this shifting uh, 
idea and language. So I, I want to move into kind of that, that second part of this is that I don't think this conversation we're having is new, right? I mean, if, if you're a minority, if you're a language development teacher, um, you know, my wife and I, that's how we met. We were teaching English to language learners coming from various parts of the world into, you know, the um, American educational system. So this isn't new and we know this. And yet here we are, right, about to go into 2023. Um, this episode, right, when you're listening, it'll be 23. But, you know, um, <laughs> and, and we're still having this conversation, right, about real American English, which like if that were the case, we'd all be speaking Native American dialects. But that's a whole other conversation. So I'm curious, like, like in your perspective, like why? Why are we still having this conversation? Why are people still so afraid to embrace these different dialects and vernaculars? Uh, you know, it's. I think it. I think it completely, completely goes to this idea of identity, right? So we we uh, regularly talk about this idea that language and identity are married. Hmm. Right. You, you, that's why you hear people say, uh, you know, Charles, I'm sure you heard it, you know, oh, you're talking white. Mm -hmm. uh, I was told having been born and raised in DeKalb, you know, oh, why, why do you speak like that? You know, you talk white. Uh, in fact, I was just, my wife and I were discussing, um, you know, my wife is white. My children are biracial. I've been as intentional as my mother was in making sure that I, added my G to the end of, you know, gerunds and, and I, um, you know, used uh, academic vocabulary. I'm just as intentional in making sure my children understand African-American English and teaching them words because I don't want them to be, to miss out on that part of their culture, right? Because they're going to go to school. Uh, their mother and I, you know, are, are both, um, you know, well-versed in general American English. And so we can speak that, but we want them to never be outside of, uh, have outside of accessing uh, both cultures that they belong to. And so we talk about words that we want them to know um, um, from African American English. So I think it's, it definitely still has a lot to do uh, with identity and with the power structure, right? So when you talk about language and power, we understand that there's certain language that is spoken in boardrooms. There's certain language that's spoken in the places where decisions are being made. And until African American English or other um, uh, vernaculars, other dialects are respected and accepted in those spaces, right? Uh, it'll be hard to make it uh, accepted, you know, in places like education. To that point, I would say sometimes I feel like, man, if there's not a seat at the table, then we got to build our own table, you know, and and make space for our language to continue to grow and develop. Because one thing I'll say quickly about African-American English is that it is not English with mistakes. Right. It is systemic um, and it follows all of the rules of, of linguistics. Right. It has patterns of behavior and things that we do and say on a regular basis. Uh, that double negative is something that shows up on a regular basis. Again, I, I regularly say, if you hear somebody say, uh, you know, if you hear your black mom or your black auntie say, ain't nobody talking to you, then you know you need to move around because ain't nobody. If, if they've said, especially, you know, my mother has a has multiple college degrees, but when she switches and she says to me, ain't nobody talking to you, stay in a child's place. <laughs> 
I know I need to move around. Even at 33 or 34 years old, I need to move around. Yeah, exactly. But she, she ain't nobody talking to her, and I need to I need to recognize that. So yeah, you know, I uh, it's funny because I I always say that I mother in Spanish. I show most of the affection I show my children is in Spanish. I don't know why, but it just comes out like I'm mi amor lindo, like I just can't even imagine myself doing that in English. Like it's just so natural for me, which again points to that idea that we, um, when we say something is improper, we're talking a lot more than just that child. But to go back to your original question, I I think it's so, so complicated, Charles, because you're right. It's not new, but I think as more and more people are able to, um, you know, access higher ed, unfortunately, I think we're, then we become aware of that. For example, Maurice and I talk about how a lot of the linguistic studies or like bilingual education research um, was done on, on us, on our age, like kids that were our age, mm-hmm. right? But we never knew the outcome of that research. We never, like my parents would never be in that room where the findings are being shared and, and, and the implications. Um, but I think for people like us, you know, we understand that education is elitist. Let's just, you know, call it what it is. But when we spend so much time discussing important societal issues with, you know, using a lot of jargon, we're excluding the very people that are most deeply impacted by them. So I think that's why it's so important to encourage um people of color to continue, you know, um, their education so that they can get into these spaces and for lack of a better word, infiltrate the system. Um, so that, you know, we start to open doors for each other. And like Marie said, we start building the tables for people who look like us. And it's going to take that time, you know, where we're starting to become more visible in all of these spaces. Lisa, I know that you, you jokingly were like, we need to infiltrate, but like that that's what I tell people all the time. You know, like I use and it, it's interesting, I think, right? The more work that we do in these spaces, the more work that we try to do to expose and to educate, right? We're also becoming more and more self-aware. And I've realized my position as like the safe black guy, right? Like Oh, come on, talk about it now. <laughs> so bro. it's like Hey, talk right? about it now. I, I I can I can be in your space. I could let you drop your guard down, and guess what? Now I'm kicking open the door. Come on, guys. Come on. Come on. We're in. We're in. Whoa, Run. wait. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 you're it, it, you're right. It's it's just knowing how to to navigate those spaces. And I don't feel as as I pointed out earlier, right? I don't I don't feel as if I'm switching or selling out because. To be honest, I feel that way. And so I, I don't know if I've shared, you know, in this space, but one of the groups that I was part of uh, within the Chicago Public Schools was a pipeline trying to encourage more minority leadership um, roles, right? And so uh, there were there were pipelines for black males specifically, there's uh, for Hispanics. Um, and it was interesting because at one point, you know, we have a room full of black male educators. Um, some of us already were in leadership positions, some of us moving into them. And we had a conversation around 
how oftentimes we I almost reverse code switch, right? That we engage with one another in a way that we believe we're supposed to engage with one another because that is what we've been taught that black males are supposed to do. And so I remember sharing a space with one of these guys who, who is, you know, a, a principal in Chicago as well. And he said, you know, I, I, I grew up in an affluent neighborhood, right? I, I don't use, right, a lot of slang. I don't use a lot of these terms, but I feel like I have to. And a few of us as we're in that space, they were like, we were doing the same thing. <laughs> like, because oh I thought that's how you, and then so like, oh, and it was interesting to see those facades drop, right? And everybody was able to just be who they truly were, whatever that was. But it's, but it's interesting because I think a lot of times when we talk about, you know, code switching, we think like, well, we're jumping into the quote, like dominant, right? The, the proper, right. And I'm using all my air quotes here, um, you know, language, but it's just goes to show that our perceptions of what's acceptable as opposed to being just being who you are and not allowing that language to become a barrier, but instead of a, a reflection of who you are, how you're showing up and what you're bringing to the table. But even within our own groups, we do that to one another. Yes. We're not a monolith. Right. Yeah, man. Uh, and Lissette and I have, have talked about that a bunch, about th that idea that there is no monolith, right? Um, we did an election episode, right? And you talk about the Latino, right, or the Hispanic community, but how it differs from Florida to Texas to, mm -hmm. you know, Chicago, um, uh, you know, here in Illinois, Um what I would say, though, Charles, that's, that's man, that's really interesting. I appreciate you bringing that up because, again, I I shared a story recently that I moved at one point in the middle of childhood. I moved from an area where I was one of the few black kids in my school building to an area where there were a lot of transplant uh, black families from the city who had come, you know, to to DeKalb, and now all of a sudden I was in that school. And I lived in that neighborhood and my language very quickly adapted while I was with them. But at school, I maintained kind of this, you know, uh, this this language that my mother had told me would give me access. Right. And I'm, we had explicit conversations about it, even as as a child that I can remember. Um, but I was intentional about wanting to uh, wanting to be able to to fit in with my new group of peers. Um, and so I think from childhood that has existed, that I have, that I have had that, but, but a hundred percent, there is uh, almost this expectancy of how I interact with other black people, um, in, especially in the education space where we are few and far between, um, you know, uh, it, 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 there is a, a certain expectation and, and I had not thought about that. So again, I appreciate you calling that out. Yeah. Can I say something to this point too, Maurice? And I hope, you know, we're very transparent and forthcoming. Um, but I have seen that, that, that sounds like a disclaimer. Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Like, I, I don't mean to offend you, but no, no I just don't want to put you out on front street, Maurice, but no, no, I'm going to put it out there. Put it out there. All right. So I have seen, the way that other black educators, particularly older black, or even just males, will interact with Maurice. And 
Maurice, you almost get a little inhibited as well, right? I wonder, is that like a language thing? Because I've never asked you this. Like, what what is the what is the rub? Because it's always a little funny to watch as they start to engage with each other because Maurice changes a little bit, and I don't think he does it intentionally, but I've picked up on it. You know, we've done this enough. Is it a language thing? Like, do you feel like they're going to know something about you because of the way you speak, or what is it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No. And and actually, it is intentional. Uh, it is. It is my. Um. It is my my safeguard. Right. It's like. It's um. It's that. I. Uh, okay. So man, now we're gonna get real transparent here, right? I was born and raised in DeKalb, and so in in that sense already, I have always felt like I, uh, because of how, how I grew up, I felt like I needed to defend my blackness immediately because I was born and raised here in this small corn-fed town, right, uh, that I still call home. I think then additionally, um, I married my high school sweetheart who happens to be a white woman. And so then uh, there's an additional piece mm -hmm. that even, and again, her and I have talked about like needing to defend my blackness because I've had older black men in the community here who now know me and respect me, but they said initially, they said, oh, when you came back and you was married to this white woman, we, we weren't sure, brother, you know, if, but we see now you're really down for the people and one of the people out there doing the work. So I've earned that respect. So I, I enter these conversations uh, sometimes, unfortunately, right from almost this deficit mindset of like, man, I really got to go out and prove mm myself mm -hmm. um, in these spaces. And, and I think, Charles, what you have said, um, I think has given me that liberty. I, I really feel like that that has benefited me even today just to be able to say, okay, moving forward, I'm just going to be me and know that I'm doing the work and I don't have to prove that. And and so I think, Lisette, that's that's probably what you're seeing. It is something I'm, I'm conscious of. I am aware of it. And and moving forward, I'm going to try to do better. <laughs> yeah. And I feel bad because I feel like in the past, I've kind of clowned you a little bit about it. <laughs> like, you know, but no, now as we're sitting here, um, didn't know this was going to be a therapy session, huh, Charles? See, see, that's what I'm, I'm doing. <laughs> that's my job. You know, but I'll, I, I'll you bill know, your I, insurance I, later. Don't worry. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I, I have seen it more recent and, and yeah, man, that was good. <laughs> so. So as we get ready to close out, because, you know, I'm, I'm I always like I look up at the time and I'm like, man, we're just we're, we're chugging through. I, I want to go back to something, Maurice, you said at the beginning of this, you know, that when we label something as improper. Right. We we think it's OK. We, we think it's a safe thing to say, well, that's not proper language without understanding the implications of that. Now we're attacking not just the language that you're utilizing, but we're attacking your culture. We're attacking your home. We're attacking your family because that language that's being used, as you mentioned earlier, you know, is utilized in these spaces. And so that phrase is a lot bigger. And so I, I'm hoping that if someone is listening to the show right now and they're thinking, man, I've said that, right? Or, or I've I've come down on the language that has been used in our spaces, and now I'm starting to see the the implications of that. I understand this is part of a much larger picture, but what do I do about that, right? As I'm going into the second part of this school year, as, I, as I'm trying to do better, right? I'll, hopefully, that's why they're partially listening to the show. They're right. 
what is some advice that you might have for someone like when we hear this language, when we hear it's being used, like what can we do to, as we've said, we have to make it more acceptable. Do you have any ideas, suggestions on how we collectively can move closer towards that goal? Yeah, I, I, I do. I think, I think number one, acknowledging that these linguistic differences exist Number two, recognizing them as assets. Uh, I, I, it bothers me to no end when I hear a teacher say they have no language. Mm. Uh, and you'll hear that sometimes around bilingual education. We'll see that they're not really good in English or Spanish, you know. Um, well, what we have got to do is we have got to find that student's assets, right? What are their current strengths? And then we are building on those strengths. Uh, but the, the third thing I would say is um, really just be intentional about the language that you're using as an educator. Recognize that it always communicates more right, than, than, than you intend. Uh, the, the last thing I would say is you should probably uh, hire Seaman to come in and do a workshop with your school. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hey, not even going to hate, like, plug. plug away, I'm, plug away. Yeah, that's a little plug. <laughs> you know, I um, I love Lisa Delpit. I don't know if you've read Other People's mm-hmm. Children, um, but there's this quote that she uh, wrote, and I just, it has stayed with me, and it's, we do not really see through our eyes or hear through our ears, but through our beliefs. Mm. And, you know, for many of our students, the battle is just the beliefs. That's what we're really fighting, right? Is shifting the attitude and the beliefs that, you know, um, African-American and other children of color are facing. Until we get honest about our own biases and our own beliefs, we can talk strategies, we can give you resources, but you have to attack your own biases and your own beliefs. And we all have them. And so I, I think that really is the biggest battle. And it's been so ingrained in our American education system, right? Um, and we've unfortunately, you know, made blackness uh, synonymous with inferiority. And mm-hmm. that is still so pervasive. And until we attack that, you know, any resource in the world is not going to change that. Man, I, I love it. And just so you know, that that, that workshop session from SEMO about, you know, these act resources like you know CW Consulting will do the mindset shift. And I'm, uh, so hey, hey absolutely. So now we part collaboration. Now you got one right, one one institute day, one the next. You know. Oh, <laughs> uh, so man, I I cannot thank you all enough. You know, for for coming into the space and and just really having, you know, the these conversations around language. And I mean, there there were a ton of topics that we could have talked about. Right. Even within language, we went down one avenue. Right. Because even when it comes to language, I think and I mess with my wife about this all the time, even like, you know, how we don't necessarily just not see language as an asset or we we think it's inferior. But, you know, then there's the idea of fetishizing and, and like just turning it into mm-hmm. a whole nother thing. Um, we talk about it. Yes. I mean, I, I mess with her all the time. I'm like, you know, 
like, hey, you could you could throw on that Sophia accent. I'll be okay with it. Uh, see, I said that about Idris Elba. See, he was fine, and then I heard him speak, and he was ten times fine. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, wait, are we promoting? Or no, I'm joking. I'm joking. No, no, yeah. <laughs> So recognizing, recognizing, acknowledging, recognizing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, be, before we close out, like I said, I, I just want to say thank you for coming and, and, and having this conversation. You're absolutely right that no matter what we do, right? And, and I think we are seeing this more and more often that there, there's a ton of resources, a ton of approaches. I keep saying what we label as reform isn't really reform. It's just repackaging. Because it's the same things over and over and over again, and yet here we are still dealing with this. Lisa, as you mentioned, we, we have to change our mindsets because if we don't change those perceptions and beliefs, those attitudes, the behaviors are never going to follow and we're just going to continue repeating that. So, so thank you for calling that out. Yes. And that's why, you know, your podcast and the work that you do, because that's, I mean, the counter narrative podcast, I mean, it doesn't get any more... Um, explicit than that. So thank you for what you do, Charles, for real. Absolutely. So before, before we jump off here, um, you know, just a little bit, if you could share, because I'm sure the listeners now are like, Hey, I want to listen to this other show. You know, as you mentioned, you know, you have the consulting group. Um, So how can listeners find you? And of course you're both, you know, amazing educators, uh, educational leaders. Uh, So how can they connect with you? How can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. You can find us uh, on, uh, first off, Black, Brown, and Bilingue is the podcast, and um, we just wrapped up season three, and we'll be jumping into our next season uh, sometime early 2023. Um, But you can find Black, Brown, and Bilingue on Twitter at B-L-K-B-R-W-N-Bilingue. And then, of course, we're on Instagram as well, Black, Brown, and Bilingue. Uh, YouTube channel um, as well, where we've got some good content there. Um, Instagram, uh, Black, Brown, and Bilingue, I, I may have mentioned that. Um, but then additionally, you can find uh, some information about SEMA, uh, which is Culture, Identity, Multilingual Advocacy, um, which is the name of, of, of that consulting uh, group that we um, have started uh, at SEMAofIllinois.com. SEMAofIllinois.com. Uh, and um, really excited uh, about uh, just some opportunities to share our heart, our passion um, uh, that we have had uh, with with SEMA. So definitely well, look forward tell to connecting. Them what SEMA means in Spanish? You got to give them the whole story. Oh, that's true. That's true. So SEMA is the Spanish word for mountaintop. And so immediately we were we were going through name ideas, Charles, and I was like, Oh wait, hold on, SEMA mountaintop, as in we have been to the mountaintop. You know, you got to hit them with the. Uh, with the uh, Dr. King reference, of course. You know, because um, I was going to say, Brett, that's my husband's name. <laughs> Maurice is a reverend also. Ah, so okay. when he gets his doctor, he's going to be Reverend Doctor. Yeah. Yes. All the yeah. titles. All the titles. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I, I cannot thank you both enough for, uh, you know, not just being on the show. Obviously, this is a great way uh, to kick off my day, this series of recordings that I'm going to do today. Uh, great way to launch into it. But just thank you for the work that you're doing. I I would love at some point to pop in, visit you at your schools, because I, I can only imagine what those spaces are like. Um, you know, and, and of course, the work beyond, right, with the show, with the consulting, this work needs to be done. 
Uh, and there needs to be more and more people being willing to step out and, and to push back and to the counter the narrative. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I want to thank you for listening to the Counter Narrative Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to like, subscribe, and of course, share it with friends and family. I'd also love to hear your thoughts about the show, so please leave a comment or two as well. Now, I'm not sure what platform you're using, but the show can be found on Anchor, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, and plenty of other platforms. If the show isn't on your preferred site, let me know, and I'll be sure to get it up and running. This podcast is also featured on schoolrubric.com, where you can find educational articles, videos, and interviews with educators from around the globe. Be sure to connect with me and other listeners by following the show on Twitter at the CN Podcast and joining the show's Facebook group. Take care.